If you've got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. And while you're finding Acts chapter 2, go ahead at the same time, find your spot in Hebrews chapter 10 as well. So we're going to start in Acts 2, put your finger in Hebrews 10 uh, to be ready for that when we get to there in just a moment. Uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about God's family uh, today, uh, being together. And so I'm going to pray. Jesus, thanks so much for this time. <clears throat> Thank you that we get to hang out together. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to gather together to worship you as brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as uh, some men and women who are working towards trying to see if they can trust um, you or not. Uh, Father, in this space, wherever we're at with you, would you meet us there? And would you speak to us directly through your spirit? Uh, Father, I'm opening up your word. Uh, we're teaching your word. And I'm just going to pray that you would speak through me. Um, nothing changes in our heart. Um, nothing gets done uh, unless you do the work this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, you are free to do your thing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, this past week, we were sitting around the table uh, in, our, in our dining room, and uh, I just found myself just kind of sitting back looking at the table, uh, looking at like some of the things that are going on with it, just kind of examining the table. And it's really it's, it's, the table itself, it's nothing exciting. Uh, actually, uh, I built the table uh, years ago, and, uh, and I remember when I was building the table, I went down, like, I'm not a builder, okay? So, like, that's not my thing. I was down in the basement thinking, like, well, we need, a, we need to have a table, and so I grabbed some wood and started throwing some things together. And there was a, pro, there was a point in the process where I thought, is this really going to be worth it? Is all, all the effort of trying to figure out what I'm doing and trying to build a table, is it all going to be worth it? And this past week, as I sat around the table, I started looking at the, the scratches that were on the table, and the, there was paint uh, in different places on the table, and there was uh, 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 bite marks from dogs on the table, bite marks from my kids on the table. Um, there's uh, all kinds of things going on. There's uh, glitter and food in the cracks uh, of the table, right? Yeah, like, it, it's nothing really fancy, but I sat around the table, and I was like, heard the laughter, and I heard the conversations that were taking place. Like, my kids were having real conversations, things that actually mattered, and we were talking, and we were laughing. And, and, and I thought, yeah, yeah, it was worth it. Every single bit of the time that went into it was worth what was going out. Like, again, like, the table isn't perfect, but the work that, put, that went into the table to create what was happening around that table in that moment, every single bit of it was, was worth it. And, and I thought about that question this week, as I was thinking about talking about family and us gathering together this week, and the question that popped in my mind was, is it worth it? Like, like for us as a church, gathering together each Sunday after each Sunday after each Sunday and meeting in life groups and meeting for discipleship, is all of that, is it worth it? I'm, I'm sure you've had that question in your own life, that there have been times where you're struggling to get the kids out the door struggling to get yourself out the door, trying to pull on your husband or pull on your wife to get out the door, having those fights and those arguments as you're moving out, thinking, man, is this really worth it? Like, I'm investing a lot of time into this if it's not. Is, is it really worth it? Is going to church, is, is it worth it? And here's what I mean when I say worth it, is the time investment that we have to put into it is the, the vulnerability of actually taking the time to be real with one another. Because if we're not being real with one another, just hanging out, then, then we're, just, we're just no different than any other group that meets from, from week to week or accountability group or something like that. If we're not just being real with one another. So is the vulnerability that goes into gathering together, is, is that worth it? 
The value of sharing real struggles. The value, as Paul talked about, um, about carrying one another's burdens. Not just carrying your own stuff, but carrying the burden of a brother or sister that's sitting next to you. Is that worth it? The time commitment that's necessary to meet together, to worship, to clap together, to get on the train together, and to worship our God. Is, is all of that worth it? We live in a society, a society that elevates ROI over everything else, right? ROI being return on investment. If, if I'm going to put my time into something, I better get something back out of this. And, and so we're always evaluating, calculating, is the return for the work that I'm going to put into this, am I actually going to get out of it the, the same investment, if not more, of what I put into it? And so the question that we're asking ourselves this morning is, as we gather together, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And so if you've got your Bibles there in Acts chapter 2, Here's what Luke says, in, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to, apostles, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now in Acts, God's doing something brand new. He's creating something called the church, right? And, and the church, we're, we're not talking little C church, we're talking big C church that's going to meet in little, little house churches, little huge big churches in the local region there in states that would be formed later, in countries that would be formed later. We're, we're, we're talking about little C to big C church here. God's church being established. And that church wasn't built with bricks and stone. It was built with people. People like you and me, right? People who have trusted Jesus and as they trust Jesus, who had the indwelling spirit living inside of them. We're talking about building uh, the church. And so in Acts chapter 1, Jesus commissions disciples. He's telling them that they're going to go into uh, Jerusalem, Judea, into Samaria, and to all of the ends of the earth. And they're going to go and they're going to tell them about the name of Jesus. We're going to tell them about what salvation looks like. We're going to tell them about what Jesus has done. And they're going to go from place to place to place in, in order uh, to do that. And we're actually, um, we're going to talk a lot about that next week. And then we move on to Acts chapter 1, we get to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Now, he had promised that he was going to send the Holy Spirit way back in John chapter 14, John chapter 16, and he said, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to be a helper to you. And it's going to be a good thing that I go, because if I go, I can actually send the helper, and he can indwell you. And when he comes, you're going to be able to do all kinds of, uh, of things. And so he had promised to do it in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is actually coming on the scene. And he says, I'm going to give you the Spirit, and he's going to help you to be the church, to live out the gospel truths, but also he's going to give you the Spirit to help build his church as well. And so right now, the Holy Spirit's on the scene in Acts chapter 2, and Peter, who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God now, uh, if you remember Peter, Peter is this guy who's got these ups and downs with the Lord. There are moments where he just expresses all kinds of faith, and there are moments where he just shows all kinds of doubt, like just, just keeps putting his foot in his mouth in different scenarios. But now you've got Peter, and Scripture says that he preaches the sermon, and 3,000 people trust Jesus. And then 3,000 people get baptized as well. That's a lot of people getting saved. That's a lot of people being baptized all in one afternoon. 
And so think about this. I mean, Jesus, he's, I mean, he's died, he's been buried, and now he's been resurrected. And in this resurrection, there was a 40-day period where he kind of hung out with everybody so that people could see him alive. And then you've got this 10-day period after he says, you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and to Samaria. And then he ascends into heaven. And now you've got this 10 days before he sins. So it's been about a month and a half since since Jesus' resurrection. And when Jesus was walking around on the scene before the resurrection, he didn't have that many followers. Now bear with me, okay? He had people who walked around trailing him around in huge crowds because of the miracles that he was doing. Like he was feeding people, he's healing people, like, hey, I want to see some of that. I want to see what I can get out of him. But there weren't many people that were actually trusting that he was the Messiah. The following for him was kind of low. But when the Holy Spirit comes onto the scene, Peter preaches this message, and 3,000 people get saved. It must have been some kind of sermon, right? 3,000 people in a singular day. But all Peter was doing was telling people about Jesus. He's telling about Jesus. He was the one who came to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. And he was the one that you'd been waiting on as the Messiah. And then, with this simple message, the Holy Spirit does the rest of the work. And 3,000 people get saved from all over the place, from all kinds of different walks of life, all kinds of different backgrounds, all types of different languages. And I don't want us to miss what happens here. This newly formed community of faith, on the very first day that it's formed, in a culture that is religiously pluralistic, right? They, they hear about the God of the Jews, and they got their view of that, but they, hear, they, they understand the gods that they've been worshiping. So it's not just Yahweh God who's in charge for them. We've got all these other gods that we mix into the mix as well. And so they're religiously pluralistic, but they're also morally and, 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 and ethically somewhat bankrupt in the culture as well, or at least confused, we could say. And the first thing that the church does is they're all poured, pulled together, these new converts all together, they're gathering together with one another to learn, to grow, to worship, and to be the church. And as they be the church, they begin to work on building uh, the church. And I believe one of the reasons why they began to gather together is, is because they knew that there was strength in, in numbers. They knew that there was courage in numbers, and they were going to need the courage, and they were going to need the strength to stand boldly in the culture that they were living with, living in at the time. Because boldness is not a one-man job. Boldness is not a one-woman job. There is a rare breed of people who can stand up in front of others and just, and just start sharing boldly, boldly without anybody standing next to them. It's a rare person who can stand in front of everybody else and dance the train and make a fool of them. I won't say a fool. Make a scene of themselves, right? There, there's, not many who, there, there's not many who just have that kind of courage. The rest of us, we need somebody standing beside of us. We need somebody who will give us courage and who will give us that kind of a strength. And, and so we just need one other person, one friend, one brother or sister in Christ who can help us stand boldly. Or you put a whole group of people standing around us and then the courage immediately goes through the roof. Think about James when he was standing up here and he was dancing and all the kids gathered around. When one person started dancing along with him, then that gave the next person courage and that gave the next person courage. And before you know it, it was a whole group of people that were dancing, walking out of this place. But it didn't start like that. It needed more than one person to go along because the person sees the other person and said, oh, if they're doing that, I guess I could do that too. If they're, if they're hanging out like that, I guess I can do the same thing. There, there's an old song 
uh, that goes, by the way, I'm sorry if this offends anybody by saying old, um, that goes one is the loneliest number, right? And one really is the loneliest number until you add two and three and four, and then the strength and the courage just instantly goes up. Think about what our kids go through with the peer pressure in school right now. I mean, you thought it was tough when you were growing up. Man, the stuff that our kids are faced with right now, and just the courage to be able to stand boldly in the face of a culture that is just shifting and going the opposite direction. But to be able to say, no, I know, I know, I know that I know who Jesus is. And he has called me to live differently. To be able to have that kind of courage is one thing, but to have another person who stands alongside you and says, I'm right there with you. And then another person, and then another person. Man, the courage just instantly goes through the roof. You know, the church got together and they hung out from day one because they believed that God's people gathered together was infinitely better and was infinitely stronger than God's people being all alone. And for the church and the early church in Acts chapter 2, it was worth it uh, for them. But why was it worth it? It was worth it because they got to eat together. Uh, they, they, they sat down and they ate together. A table for one can be pretty lonely, can it? But you add another person to the table, and then you can have a conversation. And then you add another person to the table, and another person to the table. Now, now you've got a group, and now you've got, as James said, a party. Not just a but a party is beginning to happen. You can have real dialogue, you can have real conversation, and you're not alone any longer. So the church, they, they, they felt like it was worth it because they weren't alone anymore. Well, why else was it worth it to them? Because they were able to start putting their finances together and help meet the needs of the community. When it's just one person standing there pulling out their pockets to try to meet the needs of everybody in the community, your funds can only go so far. Your generosity can only go so far. But when you start adding more pockets to the pile, more people to the pile, then that, uh, that adage that says more hands makes light work or more dollars goes farther, it's the church gathered together, they meet the needs and to the point that where there's no needs amongst them. And so this is another reason why it was worth it to them. They joined together to meet the needs of the community. Why else was it worth it? Because sitting in the temple all by yourself can be really lonely. Sitting in the temple or the church all by yourself could be really lonely for, for some. And it could be really awkward too. If you're the only one sitting in, in the church, and Shane, if it was just me and you sitting in here, and I just stood here and I started talking, just you, there's nobody else in the room, and we're just kind of dialoguing, I'm telling you about Jesus, looking at you, and we're having this conversation, and talking about what's going on in your life, talking about the kids, talking about what's going on in the Bible, how you can live Jesus out in the community. If it's just you and me, it just gets pretty awkward after a while. But you start adding the whole church in, you start adding more people in. That awkwardness goes away and we're growing together and we're learning together. We're eating together and we're praying together. That changes things. I think one of the other reasons why it's worth it is because gathering together and singing and praying and worshiping together, I think is practicing for eternity. When we get together, we're, we're getting together as a community of believers who, who, are, who are experiencing life right now. But this is bigger than just gathering. We are practicing what we are going to do for eternity. Uh, we're going to spend time together. When it's all said and done, and we're finally at the place for which our heart longs, when we're standing before the Father, we're standing before the throne of God, we're not going to be standing there in front of Him, looking around and seeing nothing. And when we stand uh, before God, 
Before the throne room of God, there's going to be seas and seas of people that are going to be standing there worshiping the Father with us. And it may even be somebody that you're sitting with, with right now. And maybe even somebody that you're, you're sit, that you're sitting and worshiping with right now this morning that you came into this place with. And maybe that you're sitting next to Luther one day talking about all the things that he wrote. Maybe that you're sitting next to Calvin. And maybe next, that you're sitting next to Billy Graham or John the Baptist or Paul or Lydia who was instrumental in getting the church started. It, we don't know who we're going to be standing with, but I know that when we're standing before the throne room of God, we're not going to be standing as an individual. We're going to be standing as a sea of people there worshiping together. So as we gather together, the, one of the reasons why it's worth it is because this is preparing us for eternity. This is what we're going to do e eternally as we worship God together. The trajectory of our faith was never meant to be alone. The trajectory of our faith never moves us to the goal of being all alone. The trajectory of our faith actually moves us into a community of brothers and sisters worshiping together around the throne of God. Practicing being together now is preparing us for eternity. So if there are brothers and sisters that we don't get along with who have trusted Jesus, man, we got to get that stuff worked out because we're going to be standing before the Lord together worshiping him. We are practicing and preparing for eternity as we gather together. I just think that's a cool reality. We gather and we practice for eternity as we worship together and as we worship around Jesus. He's the focus. He's the center. And the reality is that in Jerusalem, people were flocking to be around this type of community. Uh, Luke here says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They wanted to be around this type of community. But that wasn't easy, right? Because being a follower of Jesus during the time, it wasn't easy. The gathering of brothers and sisters, was, it was happening against the backdrop of anger and, and hate. Now, don't forget, just a month and a half earlier, Jesus, there in Jerusalem, he was crucified by this crowd of people, by the people in this town. It wasn't a safe place. And so those who identified with Jesus, who followed the way of Jesus, they, they identified with him. They were setting themselves up to be social outcasts, not allowed to, to enter into the market, not allowed to do business as normal folks would do. It was not easy for followers of Christ to be identified with Jesus, especially here in Jerusalem at the time. But the reality was they didn't care. They, they just didn't care. Being a part of the community and the family, it was worth it to them. And so being a part of the church in the beginning, it was this utopia kind of expression. To be a part of the church meant that you gathered together. You were a part of something that was bigger than yourself. You were growing. The people around you were growing. And, and the return on the investment for them, it was worth the risk. What they were putting in, they were getting back out in dividend after dividend. The social ostracization and even the risk of death, they had counted that cost, and it was still worth it for them. In the early church, it was inconceivable for people to try to go at it alone. It was inconceivable to walk a row without people involved in your life. But as you go along throughout the book of Acts and the church is expanding and it's spreading and more churches are being planted, the ideal setting that we see here in Acts chapter 2, that situation starts hitting roadblocks. And when you read Paul's letters, Paul, you see him in most of his letters, he's addressing some of these issues and roadblocks that the church was, was bumping into. And that sense of gathering together, it didn't feel as worth it to them the further they went along. 
the further they got away from Jerusalem. And so the trajectory of gathering together, if it started together, the further they got from the ideal beginning, the further they got from one another. And so the question kept going through the minds. Is it still worth it for us to gather? And so people naturally began to dissipate and to isolate into some areas. They began to isolate from one another, kind of heading off into their own little islands. And if we've said that uh, people gathering together is practicing for eternity... People isolating from each other and, and separating themselves, going out to their own island, that's a practice of futility, it's a practice of pain, and it's a practice that is very dangerous for the people of God to in, in, engage in. I, I think the example uh, for us um, would be like a National Geographic, right? Do you guys remember uh, the National Geographic images? I, th- I think the illustration is usually used in, in isolation here, so I'm going to go ahead and use it. Um, when predators are looking for their prey, they don't attack the group, do they? Because the group, there's too many, they're too strong together. But they sit back and they wait for, for the one who's not paying attention or, or the one who might already be a little bit wounded, or the, the one who's just kind of doing his own thing off over in the distance. And when they see the one that's off by himself, that's when the predator attacks. That's when the cheetah or, or, or the lion jumps in and takes his prey. And I think it's the same thing with isolated people. It's the danger of not being connected to, to, to the group that we are a part of. There's a danger in isolating. And I wrote down just a, a couple of things here that I, that I thought in the, in the realm of isolation. When we isolate ourselves from one another, our voice becomes the only voice that we hear. Our voice becomes the only voice of reason. And, and so if it sounds reasonable to us from our point of view, then it must be reasonable. We've got nobody else to hold us accountable to the view that we might have. Our voice becomes the only voice. And we're not used to hearing the voice of somebody else. It's just, it's just us. Uh, we can become lonely. And in our loneliness, depression can kick in. It doesn't have to, but uh, depression can kick in. And when we're down with bouts of depression, we become an easier attack for Satan. He, he, he looks for those moments. He looks for the opportunity when people are disconnected from the strength of the body. And, and so he pounces then. We don't hear the truth that we need to hear in the context of brothers and sisters and other believers who love us. Um, and we won't allow ourselves to hear the truth. We, we feel like and scenarios that we're going through in um, our lives, there, there are moments where we can feel like we're the only one. I'm the only one who's experiencing this. I'm the only one who understands this. I'm the only one who's ever gone through this. And when we're isolated, we don't have anybody to, to come alongside and say, no, bro, like I, I went through that last year. Or I, I was dealing with that too. You're not the only one. Or, 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 or gal, like, like we, we've, we've been through this. And we can help walk you through that. And so in isolation, it becomes this very dangerous place to be. When we camp out on our own little island, we're not a part of a community that can help walk us back to the, to the truth. Now, I want you to flip over to Hebrews 10. We're going to jump out of Acts 2 real quick. We're going to head to Hebrews 10. And I think if you hang with me for just a second, I think this will make sense, okay? At Easter, we talked about how Jesus destroyed the curtain, right? He took down the curtain that separated us from God, it took, he took down the curtain that led to isolation uh, away from him, and he gave us, in that moment, he gave us access to him, and he gave us access to his grace. And so what that grace means, or what that access means, is that we no longer have to fear approaching God, that we are able to stand in boldness before the Father, 
that there is no longer any separation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? We stand on the boldness and the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. And so we are able to, in that space, live in his grace. So we don't have to feel rejected by him. That also means that we are able to be as honest as anybody in this world can be with the Father. But it doesn't mean that we only are honest with him. That grace gets extended to the the horizontal relationships in the body of Christ as well. So we can be real and honest with him, but we're also freed up to be as the most honest people inside the church that you could ever experience because we don't have to fear being rejected. That doesn't mean that rejection doesn't happen sometimes. It doesn't mean that because you've been honest with somebody about something that you're going through that they don't somehow pull back. That's not how it's supposed to be. But we don't have to fear being rejected. We don't have to fear because of something that we've done or something that we've been through, that we're able to be honest with the Lord, but we're also able to be honest with one another. And that keeps us away from, or it keeps us um, from having to deal or stay in isolation. We're able to boldly approach him. That's what the beauty of the curtain being torn down was. We have access to God. We have access to grace. We access, and we have access to grace with one another. But as the church expanded in Acts, when they hit difficulties, instead of falling together, they often fell apart from one another. And the tendency for people in the church was to drift out into the sea and find these own little islands for them to camp out on, isolating from the rest of the body. And the writer of Hebrews, this is the context that he's speaking into. He's seeing this happen. He's seeing the church isolating from one another. And when he recognizes that that's what's going down, he throws up a red flag and says, something's got to change. We can't keep doing this. And so when we see something like that going on in the church and isolation taking taking place across this body or isolation taking across the body of Christ that's gathering in the United States but gathering all throughout the world, we have to raise the flag and say, there's something going on that we have to talk about. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to say, is God's church gathered together is always better than when it's isolated, than when we go off and do it alone. And so look at verse 19 in chapter 10. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, that's what we talked about just a few weeks ago in Easter, right? And, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I hope you hear the grace that this is dripping with. A lot of times what happens is that when we go and get ourselves dirty and we mess up, we feel like we have to run and isolate from everybody else, that we've somehow eternally made ourselves dirty again from which God had already set us free from, what he already cleaned us from. And And so what the writer of Hebrews says, no, you keep coming back because you've already been sprinkled clean. You don't have to run. He says, actually, you draw near to the Father. Don't isolate. You draw near to the Father. And look what he says in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And I want to point out this last verse, or these, these words, hold fast here, because I was reading this week, that, that popped out. So I've not really considered on what does it mean to hold fast. And so I looked into the word there, and, and, and hold fast means to have a tight grip. That makes sense, right? We feel like we can have a tight grip on things. It means not to waver. It means keeping confidence. It means staying steady. 
Now, on the surface, those make sense to us. I can hold fast. I can do that all by myself. I can keep a grip as long as I need to keep a grip. I can stay emotionally and theologically steady. I can do that all by myself in my own time, in my own word. I don't need anybody else to speak into this. This is a me thing. I can keep from bending to temptation all by myself. And to that, I would say, yeah. But what about when you can't? What about when the grip starts to give up? What about when the temptations are becoming too strong and you find yourself continuing to fall into those? What about when you reach the end of yourself and you can't do what you're wanting to be able to do? When you've been on an island so long that trying to hold fast just doesn't work any longer for you. What, is it, what, what, about, what about when you've been gone for so long that it becomes difficult to maintain your confession of faith, confession of hope, and, and the holding fast? It's got a little more waver into it than you wish that it did. When you've been gone for so long, that sin in your life, it just kind of becomes normal. It's normalized. You've been doing it for so long, it's just like, I just expect that I'm going to do that. Or that you've been separated from the truth as it's understood in the context of believers, that you're no longer grounded to the truth as God speaks it. Now you're grounded and anchored to the truth as your opinion sees it, and there's nobody around you to call that out. But what about when you've been gone for so long that you feel like it's just no longer worth it to gather together? In Acts chapter 2, what happens is 3,000 people come to faith. And how did those 3,000 people who were brand new converts learn how to hold fast? How did they learn how to not just hold on to their grip? It wasn't because they learned how to, some secret of how I can be alone and make it work. It was actually, they, they shedded the desire to be all alone and they moved into the community in the context of brothers and sisters of walking through life together. They did exactly what the writer of Hebrews says here. As they experienced and they embraced the grace of Jesus and they embraced his forgiveness, they believed that God's family, that being together was infinitely better and stronger than God's people all alone. And so in Acts 2, the people did life together. They ate together. They prayed together. They encouraged one another. They met needs together. They just hung out together. They worshiped together. They carried one another's burdens together. They were better and they were stronger together. And the only way that they were able to hold fast wasn't because they were alone. They held fast is because they did it together. They did it together. When I was uh, uh, growing up, uh, whenever we were, uh, trains would go by in front of us, they used to have cabooses. Anybody remember cabooses on the trains? Um, I remember uh, they, they usually were yellow but, uh, or red, but there were some yellow cabooses. And I was, I'd always wait for the caboose to go by. And I, I think what the, the church, now there's no longer any caboose. You know, they got rid of those, unfortunately. Um, but I think what the church was realizing was that when it's just the engine that's driving and there's nobody else involved that we're not together, I think they, they realize that an engine by itself is just a caboose. There's nothing able to power the thing. It's just riding along. But the church was always better when you have the engine, you've got the caboose, you've got the cars in between, that it was always better together. Look at verse 24. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I just want to make a few observations here. 
When I read this, man, I just feel like the writer here is saying, man, there's just a sense of togetherness that we have. Like we're in this together. We're not going at this alone. We're a team together. We're rocking through this thing. But he says, to start off and starting in verse 19, he says, let's approach God with confidence, right? That seems to be an alone thing that I can approach God by myself in confidence. And then he says, let's maintain our confession of hope without wavering. That tends to be kind of a lone thing, but starting to branch into this. We do this together as a community. But then he wraps it up and says, let's help each other. He, he says, let's consider stirring one another up to love and good works. Maybe, maybe your Bible says spur one another on towards love and good works here. What that word spur or stir there means, it means to be like an agitation that uh, that disrupts idleness. That doesn't allow idleness to stay. So, like if you if you uh, go to a pond, um, ponds are usually fairly still, right? Unless there's a good breeze coming through. And on the bottom of the pond, there's there's mud and and, and settlement that that's that's happened in that place. And so, to spur one another on or to stir one another up to towards good works is like throwing a rock into that pond and all that sediment that's down there at the bottom, it gets stirred up and it starts swirling and mixing back into the water. It's, not, it's no longer just sitting idle anymore. Now it's mixing back into the water that it's a part of. That's what the writer is saying here is to spur one another on, to throw some rocks into where there's idleness, to go to the island where people are sitting on and stir them back up out of that idleness, stir them back into love and good works, the thing that we are called to do as part of the body of Christ. Stirring us together away from idleness. And he goes on and he says, let's gather together. Don't give up on it. And I think what the readers that he was writing to, for whatever reason, they had given up on meeting together. And Scripture doesn't tell us why they were, they were not meeting together anymore. Um, but certainly, he's writing to that idea. And so we can speculate. We can say, well, um, they uh, were afraid because of what was going on in the community, because of their lives. We're going to talk a lot about that next week. Uh, maybe they were um, afraid of, of being ostracized. Maybe they just got too busy with what was going on around them. Um, there's a, an, an ancient um, writing coming from the second century uh, that was called the Shepherd of Hermas, which a, a lot of the early church used as um, some instruction on how to do church. And, and they kind of spoke into what was happening there in the second century church about why people weren't meeting together, why maybe they weren't thinking that it was even worth it anymore. And, 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 and the, the writer of that says, because of the, they got caught up in the business affairs so it's like busyness. He just got busy. And, and so, the, so the church that, that they found life in, the gathering of people that, that gave them a sense of community and belonging and a family, they, they, they all of a sudden had gotten too busy um, for. And that's dangerous. That, that, that's a dangerous thing. I, I think in the context uh, of our reality right now, like, like we've gone through a season of church ministry that none of us have lived through before. I mean, we're kind of in a culture that, that is post-Christianity. It's so hard to say that, but we're, like, we're in a culture that is trying to move beyond the tenets and uh, the faith of, of Scripture and moving away from God as authority and moving away from God as truth. 
And, and so perpetuating on top of that, bringing COVID into the picture, what has happened is that we've been told to stay away. And this is not a political statement by any stretch of the imagination, okay? This is just the reality of where we're at in the context of the church. Like we've been told to stay away from one another and, and, and for good reasons, right? For, uh, to, to try to help uh, not spread things and whatnot. But in the context of, of being separated from one another, you know, we try to figure out creative ways to get together, creative ways to continue to, to build the church together without being physically together, but being isolated and together. But what's happened in physical isolation from each other, new habits are formed, new rhythms of life begin to take place. And so where uh, we were normally used to gathering together, if that was still something that we felt was important to us, that we hadn't already shed uh, off, we, we, we've come into this place of, I just lost my train of thought, where, where we, um, give me a second, let me think about it, Shane, where am I at? Um, where, we're, we're, where we were used to being together, now we were saying, no, you, it's better if you stay apart. And so the rhythms and the habits that we've created have been in the context of isolation, maybe with our families, but away from the broader community of faith. And when that happens, and that sets in to stay our rhythm, and we don't get stirred and agitated out of that, we can set into those places where Satan is ready to attack. We can become isolated to the point where the truth is no longer what's anchoring us. The body of believers holding us accountable is not a part of what's anchoring us. The context and the love that we feel from our community when we mess up to bring us back in to the point as to the grace that we've received. We, we feel now that we have to maybe present something that's not true of who we are or, or we're afraid to come back to the community because of, for whatever reason it might be, there are some people who, who stay away and isolate because they just think, that I just know way more than everybody who gets together there. There are some people who, who isolate and, and, and say, well, I want to be together in community, but I don't feel like I'll be accepted because of the things that I've done. And so I know that I need that, but I can't get to that. Um, and so they stay at an arm's length, not because they want to, but because they feel like they have to. And so we isolate for all kinds of different reasons and what the writer of Hebrews was speaking to the culture then, I think is relevant for us now, is that we stir ourselves back out of idleness, we stir ourselves back into community, and we gather with the body of uh, believers. And we say, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Well, the writer here says the days are getting darker. I think we look around and we feel some of that. Every culture, every generation has felt the generation that they're living in, well, these are the last days, it's getting darker. But what we can say in certainty is that today we are closer than we were yesterday. This year we are closer than we were last year. And the days certainly are getting darker. And so the writer encourages us, warns us, and spurs us to stay out of isolation and back into community where we can grow together. And so we ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth it to invest time is it worth it to be vulnerable with one another? Is it worth it to open up and be real? Is it worth it to come off of our islands? Is it worth it to allow a boat to come to our island and to bring us back off of that island and bring us back into real community? Only you can answer that for you, but I think Scripture answers it for us. Is it worth it? I think Scripture says that it is. And when I built the table in the basement, um, I, I just kept asking myself, is this really going to be worth it? When I sat around the table and I heard the laughter and I heard the conversations and we were engaging in real life with each other, I thought, you better believe it. It's 100% uh, worth it. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to be vulnerable with one another. 
It's a lot of work to get off of our islands. And we wonder, is it still worth it? Maybe we just stay in our PJs and watch at home, or we stay in the hobbies that we've created outside of, of that. But I think when we look around and we see the lives that are being changed because people are gathering together and have come off their island, I think us as a church, we say, you better believe it's worth it. You better believe it's worth it to us. We, we, we think it's so worth it and so valuable to be the family of God together. We've made it our third core value. We say that God's family is going to always be better than isolation. It's always better than isolation. Uh, we've got a couple in our uh, life group, and I've asked them if I could share this story without using names or whatnot. They just found themselves in, in a situation where um, they just felt isolated uh, because of some things that had happened in, in, in their lives. And um, they were in this position of, man, I, I don't know what to do. And it's so much easier to isolate when you don't want to share what your reality is sometimes. And, and so they were living in the space of, I know this is killing us, but I, but I want to come out of this. And, and so um, I think the reality that, that, they re- that they wrestle with is we know that it's better, not using this terminology, of course, we know that it's better to gather together and that we're stronger and it's better together than being apart. But the lies of Satan is people aren't going to accept you. People aren't going to welcome you back in. It's just not going to be, it's not going to be worth it. It would be better to stay hidden. And so they got to the point where they just said, no, it's not. It, it's, not it, it's not going to be better if, if we stay hidden. And so they uh, came uh, to the group, shared what was going on in a, in, in a community of safe people. Okay, hear that. In a community of safe people, they shared what was going on. And there was no longer any chains holding them to sin. There was no longer any guilt holding them to that. They were able to speak what was going on out into existence so that Satan no longer had a hold on them. And so in that space, that they were able to ex- experience the grace not only of God, but the grace of the community that he had made us a part of when he tore down the veil. And it was a beautiful thing. And so for them, I would say 100% it's worth it. For our church, 100% it's worth it. For you, if you're on an island isolated by yourself, it is worth getting back together with the community. And so uh, I'm going to say get on the train. <laughs> get on the train. Don't wait for somebody else to start dancing. You, you get on the train. You be an encourager. You be somebody who gets in a boat and goes to the island to get people off of their island. Be an agitator in a good way. Be in a group. Get together in life, on life with people. Be a friend to one another. And you think, well, I'm a busy person. All right, one minute. What can you do in one minute this week to break isolation? I'll tell you what you can do in one minute or less. You can send a text to somebody you haven't seen in a while and say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. I miss you. I love you. How are you doing? You could have already written that by the time I just said that. Some of you that just text so fast. Less than one minute, you can bring somebody off the island. In less than one minute, you can be a boat of rescue to go to the island and pull people back. Not, not necessarily to build this building, but so Satan doesn't have a foothold in their life. Well, what if you've got two hours? Well, you're doing something here in an hour and a half that we gather together, right? Get together with a body of believers. Sing together, pray together, worship together. What, what about if you have another two hours? Get in life group. Get in, get in life on life where people know what's going on in your life and you speak what's going on in your life into the context of people who love you and you study together and you grow together and then you not only be the church, but you are help building the church uh, around you as well. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this morning, 
We're thankful for the body of faith. We're thankful for the community of faith that we are a part of in our local context, but also in the global context of believers. And Father, it is just a, a funky time to be alive. The cultural pressure with pandemic stuff, with our own junk that we carry around with us. It's just a really interesting time and it's so much easier for us to stay away from each other. God, would you break down those walls, pull down the curtains in our own personal life so that we can experience not only your grace, but we can experience the grace that comes in community. Would you help us to lock arms together with our brothers and sisters and do life together? Not give up on each other? Not give up on on, on the hope of the world, which is the church. That's what you've told us. Like, the church is the hope of the world. Us talking about you and sharing you and living you. Father, help us not to give up on that. Let us gather and sing and dance. Father, I pray that we wouldn't dance alone, but that we would dance with others. And I pray that we wouldn't sing alone, but we would sing with others. Help us to be the church, I pray in Jesus' name. Love you guys.